Praise the Lord. God bless all of you. So good to see each and every one of you here this morning. Amen. God has a great service in store for us today. Amen. Let's all stand. Of course, great can be a matter of opinion, can it? We all define words differently. We define success differently. People define great differently. For me, I define great as receiving from the Lord, being in His presence, allowing Him to minister to my needs. To me, that's great. There was a time in my life where I had to do it all on my own. There was no one else. I had no safety net. I had no family to speak of. I did, but nowhere close. And they couldn't help anyway. If I fell, it was all the way down, baby. So it was all up to me. It's not all up to me anymore. I have a safety net now, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. And when I do fail, and when I do stumble and fall, He's there to pick me up. Amen. And He keeps me moving forward. That's greatness to me. That's a great day to me. That's a great service to me. Amen. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. I see many more than two. Jesus is here powerfully. He's here mightily. Amen. Lord Jesus, we worship You. We praise You. And we're so thankful for this opportunity You've given us this morning to enter into the presence of God. Hallelujah, Jesus. We laud and we magnify You. We exalt You. We worship and we praise You. I acknowledge and I do declare into the heavens, Thou Most High God, that this is an opportunity to receive from You. I am so looking forward to all that You have in store for us today. Every gift from You is good, and it is right, and it's perfect for me. Hallelujah, Jesus. I am so thankful for You and for Your so great salvation. I thank You for the opportunity to receive of You today Your good things. Hallelujah. You are so good to us. You are so gracious and kind to us. Your benefits unto us are overwhelming. Your mercies are renewed to us every morning. Thank You, Jesus, for Your manifest presence in this place. Thank You, Jesus, for a wonderful opportunity to receive of You today. We give glory and honor unto the Most High God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Our young adults can be dismissed at this time. Amen. And us old folks, we're going to go and review last week. All right. Hang on. <laughs> Here we go. Last week we talked about the Samaritan woman, how Jesus ministered to her. The unlearned Samaritan woman was able to see who Jesus was while the learned Jewish leader, we talked about a little bit in John chapter 3, was not. Old Nicodemus, poor guy, all he could get to was, you're a teacher sent from God. That's the best he had. But this unlearned Samaritan woman, Samaritan woman, figured out who Jesus was. Intelligence and book smarts must always take a backseat to sincere hunger and a desire to know the truth. Natural talent and ability must always take a backseat to drive, to passion, 
to the ability to get back up and try again. To stick to it until you succeed. That applies to anything in life, but particularly our relationship with God. Now, I hope you know by now I'm not opposed at all to book smarts and learning. I, I encourage everyone to continue to do that. We ought to be readers. We ought to. We ought to be reading books. We ought to be reading the Word of God for sure. To the extent that God has given us the ability to do so, the intellect to do so, I think we need to take advantage of that. I think we need to be good stewards of that and utilize that toward that end, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Word of God. But, having said that, we must couple that with a desire and a hunger and a zeal for the things of God. Not just to be smarter, not just to show off everything that we know, but to draw closer to Him. There are plenty of people in this world that are smarter than all of us in this room. And they know a whole lot more about Scripture than I do. But that's all they know is about Scripture. They know about God. I know Him. You know Him. You have a relationship with Him. That always takes precedence over book knowledge. Matthew 5, 6 states, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We also saw that there is no color, no race, no lines of division in the kingdom of God. God created everyone, everywhere, and in every time period, God loved and loves each and every one of them. And He died for each and every one of them, just the same as He died for you and me. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This evolutionary stance, this doctrine that some species of the human race are more highly evolved than others, is patently false. We're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture, I promise you that. This is what we find in Scripture. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus called out the transgressions of the Samaritan woman not to judge or condemn, but to lead her to a place of repentance. And He's gracious and kind enough that He'll do the exact same thing for you and for me. And I am thankful for that. It may sound facetious when I say it, but I'm so thankful that God will point out to me when I'm wrong. Because I don't always know when I'm wrong. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. It will lie to me. My emotions will lie to me. I can think that I'm spot on accurate. I'm right. I'm good to go. And then the Spirit of God comes in and says, No, friend. Not even close. And that's a scary thing to think that I am so right, but I'm so wrong. But at the same time, I'm thankful that He loves me enough to correct me. Because I want to be right with Him. Through the simple yet powerful testimony of the Samaritan woman, many of the city of Sychar believed on Jesus as the Messiah. We read in John 4, 39-42, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on Him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So right there, many people believed on Jesus because of her simple testimony. And again, how long had she had this realization of truth? A few seconds? A minute? 
She didn't have a doctoral degree. She didn't do her doctoral thesis on Daniel's 70th week before she went out and testified about the goodness of God. As soon as she knew, she was responsible for the knowledge that she had. Again, it's like the, uh, the blind man that Jesus healed when they questioned him. I don't know about all that stuff. I don't know the answer to you, but here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I can see. That's what I know. And that's what he testified. And he gave glory to God. Folks, we can do the exact same thing. We don't need to know everything. Again, I encourage you to know more and more every day. Continue to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Word of God. Just because I don't know something, that's not an excuse to remain ignorant. I can learn it. But, today, right now, I need to be responsible for what I do know. And share that with someone else. It's fun. It's fun to share what God has done for you with someone else. But it continues. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own word, because of the word of Jesus Christ. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The entire city came to the realization that this was the very Christ. This was the one that was to come. Initially, because of the testimony of the woman. That's what brought them into the presence of Jesus. And then they heard Jesus for themselves. And that is the exact process that ought to be followed today. Amen. Our daily devotions. John 4.26 says, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. This is one of the clearest revelations Jesus ever gave to anyone about who he was. Again, the blind man in John chapter 9, same thing. Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. In both cases, this plain revelation of who he was wasn't given to the religious elite. wasn't given to the ruling class. To them he spoke in parables. These revelations were given to the simple, the ignorant, the unlearned the lower echelon of society, the common, ordinary people. Both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman were confused by Jesus' words. Both peppered Jesus with questions during their respective interactions. However, even though the Samaritan woman did not understand completely, unlike Nicodemus, she acted decisively based on what she did know. She did not wait to understand fully to obey completely. I think that's an awesome trait to have. Folks, God, does God need to explain everything in detail to you before you can take a step forward? I hope not. I used to be that way because I want to know. I want to understand something. I want, I want some place to hang that new information on. So I love to, I love to, I want the big picture all the way down. But I had to learn a lot of times the hard way. I don't always get that. Sometimes I get a word. Sometimes I get a sentence. And I'm supposed to be responsible for that word, that sentence. And act on it. God doesn't have to explain Himself to me. He doesn't owe me anything. I owe Him everything. So you didn't wait to understand fully to obey completely. What an awesome trait to have. Day one. 
Like ripping off a bandage, exposure often starts the road to recovery. If you're hurt physically, emotionally, or spiritually, hiding it, ignoring it, pretending everything is okay will only make it fester and get worse. We understand that intellectually. We understand that when someone we're talking about someone else. But when it's our own situation, we're embarrassed. I shouldn't be so weak. I should be able to get over this, but somehow I can't. We need to acknowledge it and in the right way, in the right forum, bring it out to the light of day. Now, a lot of things aren't, aren't appropriate for a public testimony service. Yeah, I'm doing this and that and the other, and thank God He's going to heal me. That's not the, probably the right forum. But one-on-one, counseling with someone that you trust, someone who loves you and has your best interest at heart, that's the right way to do it. Many people, whether they've done something wrong or are hiding some wrong that was done to them, they're actually relieved when it's finally brought into the light of day. We're not talking about this, but it's, it's a similar situation. When criminals are finally caught, a lot of times they're relieved. That seems paradoxical, but it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. Likewise, when I'm struggling with something and I'm keeping it to myself and I'm hiding it from everyone because I don't want to appear weak, I don't want to appear like I'm less holy than they are, whatever the reason may be, wouldn't it be better to actually be holy? Wouldn't it be better to actually be right with God and to be whole and complete and healed rather than pretending to be? Jesus brings these things to the forefront Again, like he did with the Samaritan woman, not to condemn, not to judge, not yet anyway. This is the dispensation of grace. And he does that so that we'll become healed, that we'll be made whole. Amen. Day two, being a man of peace is knowing you're capable of extreme violence, but you continue to choose peace instead. Okay, that's the difference between being a peaceful man and being a weak man. That can apply in many different areas. Having the capability to be violent, but choosing peace instead. If all I can, if all I can do is choose peace, well, that doesn't say a whole lot. Being humble is being persuaded of the great things you were created to be, but choosing to focus on others, and most importantly, Jesus instead. You were created to be a child of the Most High God. You were created to be kings and priests. You were created to rule and reign with Him. You are the highest. You are the pinnacle of His creation. And when you realize that and start walking in that, it's a great thing. But, on the other side of the road is another ditch, isn't there? We can start thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Humility isn't just constantly berating myself. I'm a dirty dog. I'm a, I'm a mean, rotten sinner. I'm, I'm nobody. That's not humility. That's you doing the enemy's work for him. Don't do the enemy's work for him. That's not how God speaks about you. You are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Humility is realizing that, acting on that, walking in that truth, but at the same time deferring that to others. Amen.
Just like when we finally accept the love of Christ and begin to walk in that love. We don't need the approval and acceptance of others anymore. We know we're accepted by the only one that really matters. You can... I won't say it's easy, but... It's fairly easy to to realize who has really accepted the love of Christ and who hasn't. At least long term. Because of how they act in relationship with others. And, and I can look for those because I know how I used to act before I could accept the love of Christ. So all i got to do is look for that in someone else. And I know you haven't accepted the love of Jesus Christ. When we do, we don't need the approval and acceptance of others anymore. We can defer that to others. Day three, Jesus speaks to us in the places He knows we'll be. Jesus will come to us at our level of understanding. Did you know, sometimes it's, it's hard for adults to speak with young children. Because we really have to dumb things down, right? So that they can understand. And uh, if you're used to dealing with adults all day... Uh, it can sometimes be difficult to explain complex terms in a matter that's easy for a child to understand. But did you know that God is always dumbing His stuff down? He's constantly dumbing stuff down for you and me. Because Jesus knows everything. His IQ is infinite. There's no way to measure His IQ. But He'll always bring those things that we need to know down to our level of understanding. Whatever that may be. Our level of need. Our level of interest. He's always right there. He always knows where you're at. He always understands what you need and when. That's one of the many, many amazing things about God. I was reminded again of the the story that T.W. Barnes told. God told him to, I can't remember it now, uh, the specifics, told him to go to a concert or some big public event and that he'd have a seat in the front for him. So they went, but uh, they got a seat somewhere in the middle. That's all that was available. And then someone came by, walked by the aisle and saw him and said, excuse me, are you, are you Mr. and Mrs. Barnes? Yes, I am. Please come with me. we got a seat up front for you. And, and he asked God later, why did you do it that way? Why didn't you just bring me up to the front? And he said that God told him that I, wanted, I did it this way so that you would understand that I always know where you're at. And that is absolutely true, folks. It may not seem like it. It may not feel like it in the moment. But He is always present with you. He's in the midst of it with you. You may not be able to hear His voice. It may feel like He's a million miles away. But He is right there, folks, because His Word says so. My feelings may not, but His Word does. What takes precedence... The Word of God takes precedence over what I'm feeling. It even takes precedence over what I know. Amen. Day four. Jesus knows everything we've done, are doing, and will do. And He loves us anyway. Now this is not a license to continue in sin, but rather an invitation to allow Jesus to forgive you, to restore you, to make you a new creation in Him. Whenever Jesus brings something up to you, let Him work it out in you. 
Let him unpack it and work through it. That's why he's bringing it up. Yeah, I know that, God. I'll deal with it later. I don't have time right now. Well, Jesus seems to think that you do have time right now. Jesus seems to think that this is a good time to do this. So let Him do it. Submit yourself to Him. Allow Him to heal you. Allow Him to make you whole again. Day 5. Jesus uses where you come from to become part of your story. Your testimony. What is your story? How can you use where Jesus brought you from to minister to someone else who's coming from the same place you came from? That's perhaps the most powerful thing about working through your situations. It's because now you're equipped. Now you're trained. Now you're ready to help someone else out who's still in the middle of that. I can do what I can. I can pray for people. But if I've never experienced that, I've never been addicted to drugs. Thank God. Thank you, Jesus. But someone who, who is addicted to drugs, I can pray for them. I can, I can try to work with them. But I don't, I've never been there. Versus someone who has been there and Jesus brought them out of it, they can speak the same language, if I can say it that way. They're going to receive counsel from this guy a whole lot easier than he'll receive counsel. You don't know what I'm going through. And he's right. I don't. But this guy does. And he's come through it. God has brought him through it. And he knows that he can do the same for you. That's a powerful place to be. Our lesson today, our scripture text is found in John chapter 4, verses 43 to 53. John chapter 4, verses 43 to 53. And we'll be talking about this topic from Cana to Capernaum. From Cana to Capernaum. Starting with verse 43. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him, that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. Amen. A few years ago, a minister and his family were in a time of transition. They had resigned one ministry position and were seeking God for direction. They knew for certain he had wanted them to step away from the church they were leading, but they did not know where he wanted them to go next. Leaving one position with no promise of another seemed crazy, but they knew they were following God's will. Not long after their resignation, another door of opportunity appeared to open. They felt good about this potential opening, and it seemed like God was giving them the green light. Then, unexpectedly, the door closed. It was a bit devastating, to be honest, and the family questioned what God was doing. 
but they knew they had to trust him and wait for direction. In the meantime, the family began attending a nearby church led by a pastor they knew and trusted. God also opened doors for them to preach in other area churches. Their ministry was in a holding pattern, but they could feel their situation was going to change soon. Late that spring, at the close of a midweek Bible study, their pastor stopped the service and addressed the young minister directly. He declared that God was about to answer three prayers for this family. The young minister accepted this prophetic word by faith, and within a few days, the answers began arriving. First, God worked a notable financial miracle for the family. Then a new ministry opportunity opened that the young minister had not even known existed. Finally, their young daughter received the Holy Ghost. As a bonus, God provided the family with a new house that was much closer to their new church and the new ministry opportunity. It was a challenging season for this young family, but it also was a time when their faith and trust in God grew. When God did speak, He went above and beyond in fulfilling His promises. You can believe what God has spoken. And I might add, uh, I'm going to add, this doesn't just apply to the quote-unquote ministry. This applies to all Christians. Just the same. God answers our prayers equally. Why not? There is no division between quote-unquote ministry, quote-unquote laity. Okay? That is still somewhat prevalent in our organization, unfortunately. It's been propagated. I mean, it was, it was in place when I came into church. I can imagine it was in place when most of you came into church. But that is not biblical. It is not scriptural. It is not in the mind of God. There is no division. None. There's no division of any kind. There are different ministries. There are different levels of authority, for sure. There are different uh, offices. Absolutely. Giftings. But, God sees all of us as being equally important, equally valued, equally loved. And when one prays, you get an answer just like Brother Bernard prays. And he gets his answer. Okay? So please understand, there is no division. There is no better chance of of the district superintendent getting his prayers answered versus you getting your prayers answered. God doesn't see any of that. He sees the child of God coming to Him in in their time of need. That's how He sees us. Now, between us, we might see ourselves differently. And again, if you haven't received the love of Christ, you're going to buy into that. You're going to play into that. Probably negatively. Don't do that. Allow yourself to see yourself as Jesus sees you. As a child of God. Someone that He died for. Someone that He desires so desperately to have a relationship with. And when you pray to Him, that's what we're talking about today. It's trusting God for answered prayer. When we do that, He answers. He comes running. Amen. John chapter 4 begins with the account of the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. We talked about that last week. She was a societal outcast going to draw water at noon when the sun was the hottest. I think we know why. doesn't say explicitly, but judging by what Jesus revealed about her, uh, she was probably ashamed or embarrassed to, to be talking with other people in the city. She went to the, draw water when no one else would be there. 
But Jesus met her there in the hot, baking sun and began to minister to her need. As John 4 progresses, Jesus encountered a man from a much different station in life. This man is described in the King James Version as a, quote, certain nobleman. Other translations use the phrase royal official. In any case, we know that this man was probably near the upper echelons of society, whereas the Samaritan woman was at or near the bottom of the social ladder. We know that Jesus ministers to everyone equally. He doesn't see anything else. He sees need. He sees faith. He sees desire. That's it. Doesn't matter who you are or aren't. Doesn't matter what the color of your skin is, your culture, where you were born, when you were born, who your parents are, who your children are. It doesn't matter. That's what he sees, folks, and that's what he responds to. In both of these cases, they respond to Jesus by faith. Jesus loved them both equally, and he responded to their faith equally, not to their social standing or lack thereof. Regardless of whatever power or authority this nobleman possessed, as an official in the government, he was certainly powerless against the illness that was destroying his son's life. And isn't that the way it works? It doesn't seem to matter how much I save up. As soon as I get a good amount in my savings account, something happens and i got to empty it. And I'm back to square one. I've joked with my wife, why are we even doing this? If we don't have any money to spend, nothing's going to happen. Let's just do it that way. (laughs) She didn't agree with me. I don't blame her. But no matter how many resources you have available, you will eventually encounter a situation that is greater than your resources. And I think on purpose. God does that to us on purpose. Why? Because He wants us to trust in Him, doesn't He? Amen. The kings of Israel would need to call on God for their help. When they did, they had victory. When an overwhelming army would come against them and they called on the name of the Lord their God, God would save miraculously and wondrously and gloriously. When they said, nah, I'm going to empty the treasuries out and give it to the king of Syria or the king of Egypt. We have, a, we have a league between us. Let's go out and fight against this enemy. Generally speaking, they did not succeed. In Luke 8, 43-44, we read this, And a woman having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither, neither could be healed of any. Her resources were dried up. They were gone. She'd done everything she could do. She was out. She was tapped. Came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched. She came to Jesus, perhaps in a a bit of an unorthodox way, but she came to Jesus in faith. She received an answer, didn't she? When we come to Jesus, folks, we have hope. Our nobleman, when he heard that Jesus was coming to Galilee, he heard something that gave him some hope. 
He had no hope otherwise. His son was about to die. In fact, this Jesus was now in Cana where he performed his first miracle. It's interesting to note that Jesus' hometown of Nazareth wasn't far from Cana, but he never ended up making it there. Why is that? Well, Matthew 13:58 states, he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus also met with rejection in Judea and Jerusalem, the hotbed, the center of Judaism. Those who should have declared Jesus as their Messiah instead chose to persecute and eventually crucify Him. There were cities that did acknowledge His power and authority, however, and it was to those cities He visited. To those cities He went. Faith always draws God's attention, folks. Wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, faith in God will make Him come running. Doubt, on the other hand, will make him turn his attention elsewhere. I want to do those things that bring him into my situation. I need him in my situation. The nobleman lived in Capernaum, approximately 15 miles from Cana, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. This wasn't a short distance back in the day. On a very, very good day, this was a day's journey at best. Probably a day and a half, maybe two, depending on the terrain, the weather, etc. But this was his son. What was he supposed to do? What would you do in your time of need? What lengths would you go to to get those needs met? I'm not talking about a new car or a new house. I'm not talking about something on your wish list or bucket list. I'm talking about a need. And I wouldn't even say that a need within my own body would be sufficient. Because as far as I'm concerned, I'm ready to go. I'm kind of looking forward to it. Seeing Jesus. Going home. But now somebody else's need. Someone that I love. My wife. My children. That would be a different story. I'd go, I think, to just about any lengths to make sure that they were taken care of. We don't know what the illness was, just that, quote, he was at the point of death. When the man heard that Jesus, the miracle worker, had come to Galilee, he went out to meet him. He had a need. If someone we love has a serious illness, most of us will seek out the best doctors who offer the most advanced treatments. And rightly so. I would do the same. If a loved one is battling addiction, people have been known to mortgage homes to pay for rehabilitation. Love is a powerful motivator. And we'll do anything and everything we can to help those closest to us. But as children of God, we have a much more powerful, much more reliable source of help, don't we? Do we, though? I wonder why it is then 
that we avail ourselves of Him so little. We understand here, we understand in this forum what the right answer is. And I do too. But in our moment of need, in our time of need, who do we turn to first? First Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Does He care for us? I believe He does. How does that care manifest itself? By letting you suffer. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We must learn to avail ourselves of Him every time we have a need. Again, going back to the kings of Israel, Jesus, God would chastise the kings, would rebuke the kings if they turned to anyone else but Him. Why? Why would He do that? Why can't I seek help from someone else? Why can't I try to figure it out on my own? Why not? I think there are some things that we can do. I didn't pray and fast to pick my tie out this morning. I just went with the shirt I wanted to wear and I picked it out. I think there are some things God has given us the ability to do on our own. Okay, Now if God comes and tells me, no, not that one, pick that one. Okay, I'll pick that one. But lacking any, any other kind of direction, God has given me a, a brain. God's given me experience and it, from which I can draw on. I can make decisions, and you can make decisions. But when God gives me direction counters and counter to that, I'm going to follow God. Big decisions that I don't know, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to seek direction from Him. When I have something in my life that I can't take care of, I'm going to seek Him. Now, can we do everything that we can do? I think we can. But let's acknowledge that we have limits. Let's acknowledge that I can't take care of everything, and if I go to someone else for help, they can't either. I always pick on the doctors. I could pick on any number of things. But again, low-hanging fruit. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, will trust medication over God. They'll trust doctors over God. And I have a problem with that. I'll, I'll be transparent with you. I have a serious problem with that. That is unscriptural. That is against what God desires for us. Now go to the doctor. We go to the doctor. There's nothing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But just acknowledge that they don't know everything. They're not God. They can make mistakes. The, the courts are full of doctors being brought in for their mistakes. They have, I can't remember the name of the insurance. It protects them against lawsuits. Malpractice, thank you. They have malpractice insurance for that very reason. Because they make mistakes. And if I were a doctor, I'd make mistakes. And so would you. 
I'm not blaming them for that. They're human. But they're not God. The professors in college are not God. The scientists who wear the white robes and, and come out all pompous and pious and, oh, I'm just following the evidence wherever it leads. No, they're not. They're human beings. They have biases. Just like you and me. Only God is God. Only God has infinite resources. Only God can take care of anything for us. So avail yourselves of those things. But understand, we ought to come to God first. We ought to come to Him most. And our trust needs to remain in Him. Not in the doctor. Not in the government. Not in the professor. Not in the job. In God. In God. That's where our faith is. Our trust is. Our confidence is. Certainly not in my, my riches. I think we all, we've lived long enough now, we understand how that works. They're gone just like that. Trust in God, folks. When you come to Him for a need, trust that He'll take care of it. This idea that oh, I'm going to go to Him, but if, if it doesn't work, i got a plan B. I'll try Him, but if He doesn't answer, i got this to, to take care of it. I'll work it out some other way. I think we do God and ourselves a disservice by, by thinking that way. If your plan B is to take care of it yourself, in my experience, I'm going to take care of it myself. Because what does doubt do? God goes somewhere else now. But if I have faith in Him, if I trust Him, He comes running. The nobleman asked Jesus to heal his son. This man was on a mission. He didn't take the scenic route to get to Jesus. He didn't take in the scenery. There was no time to visit friends or make any unnecessary stops on his way to see Jesus. He had to get there before his son died. He's on a mission. He was focused. That was his purpose in life, was to get to Jesus and secure an answer. John 4.47 says, When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea and to Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. I can imagine the desperation in his voice, pleading, even begging Jesus to come with me. Just come with me and heal my son. The man had run entirely out of options. He had nothing else left. Jesus was his last resort, his last hope. And he believed. He trusted in God. If I can just get Jesus to come with me, my son's going to be healed. If I can just get him to come with me, everything's going to be all right. Now, when we petition Jesus, when we bring our needs and our requests to Him, we're often expecting to meet the gentle Savior who will greet us with outstretched arms and a warm smile. Mark 10.16, referring to His treatment of children, He took them up in His arms, put His hands upon them, and blessed them. Matthew 11.29 talks about how He's meek and lowly in heart. 
Well, if the nobleman was expecting to meet a, meet a meek and gentle Jesus, he was disappointed. Instead of immediately acquiescing to the man's pleas for help, Jesus responds with something akin to a, a rebuke. Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I can imagine the disciples kind of you having a bad day? What happened? Jesus doesn't, or John doesn't record the reason for Jesus' response, but it's quite possible that the Lord was testing the nobleman's faith. We read a similar account in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. We'll go through that for just a moment. The Bible says this, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. She wouldn't shut up. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, and saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It's not meek to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Perhaps Jesus was querying the faith of this nobleman. Would he give up with the first no? Would he stop seeking me if he doesn't secure an answer immediately? Or will he keep pressing? Does he really believe that I am his only hope? Does he really believe that I'm the one that can take care of that situation for him? Well, like the Syrophoenician woman, the nobleman could not be dissuaded. John 4.49 says, The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. He continued to persist in prayer. He continued to persist in securing an answer from Jesus Christ. Amen. We must continue to persist in petitioning the Lord as well. Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 1. Reveals to us the parable of Jesus. He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge His own elect, which cry day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them? I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall He find faith on the earth. The entire purpose of Jesus telling this parable was that men ought always to pray and not to faint. I think as a general rule, 
we Christians have the first part down pretty good. But the second part is sore lacking. We get tired real quick. Luke 11, 5 and 10 says, And he said unto him, Which of you shall have a friend? And so go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Everyone... Everyone that asketh receiveth. Everyone that seeketh findeth. Everyone who knocketh the door shall be opened unto him. Everyone. Here we see the word importunity. In the New Living Translation, it's translated shameless persistence. That might be a better way to say it in 21st century United States. Shameless persistence. I don't care what people think. I don't eat. I don't even care what Jesus thinks about me at the moment. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep knocking until I get an answer. Now, the answer might be no. The answer might be wait. The answer is up to Him. But I'm getting my answer. I'm promised an answer. I'm going to keep pressing until I get it. And that's work, folks. Sometimes that's a lot of work. Sometimes He answers right away. Praise God. Sometimes it may take days or weeks or months or years before we are able to secure an answer. But we've got a promise, folks, that we will get an answer if we keep asking, seeking, knocking. If we will not give up, if we will not faint, we will get an answer from Him. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance. And supplication for all all saints. Perseverance in prayer is necessary if we are to secure our answer. Where did we get the idea that we can just skip on in willy-nilly and throw a neat at Him and He's right there to, to, to do it for us? Now, He loves us, folks. Don't get me wrong. He loves us. But the answer isn't always immediate. It's not always easy. Sometimes we got to go digging. we got to work for it in prayer. And there's a reason for that. God doesn't do that just to see what we'll do. God doesn't do that just to, eh, let's see how they respond. He does it for a reason. Are we going to trust Him? Or what if the answer ends up being no? All that work for nothing. First of all, I'd respond, what if the answer ends up being yes? Second of all, even if the answer is no, you got your answer. And it's the best answer. When God tells me no, thank you, Jesus. That's the best answer for me. I don't need that right now. That might hurt me right now. 
That's a good answer. My parents told me, no, I hated it. So did you. Nobody likes being told no, because we know what's best, don't we? We always, we always got the big picture. No one else does. <clears throat> but there was a reason my parents told me no. Why can't I play in traffic? I don't understand. Jesus healed people using many different methods. In Mark 7, 33 and 34, He put His fingers in the, in the guy's ears. He spit and touched his tongue. John 9, 6, He made clay of his spit, anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. In Matthew 8, He touched the leper who was unclean. We already read about the woman with the issue of blood. She just kind of stole virtue out of him. It wasn't the method that held the power to heal someone. The power was in Jesus Himself. The method is irrelevant. So Jesus finally responds to the man's request, but not like He thought He would. John 4.50 says, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. That's not at all what He was asking for. I need to get Jesus to come with me. Then my son will be alive. Then he'll be fine. If I can just get him to come with me. This wasn't at all what he was asking for. It was so much better. It was so much more powerful. Didn't have to wait all that travel time before the healing was secured. It was secured right now. The answer was unexpected, but the nobleman responded to Jesus' words by faith. John 4.50 says, The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. The man didn't persist to get Jesus to come with him. No, 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 that's not what I asked. The man didn't press Jesus for proof that his son's healing was actually in effect. How do I know? What if I leave and go home and it, it didn't work? He simply took Jesus at his word and he returned home. How about us? Do we trust Jesus enough to take Him at His Word? Or do we continue to beg and plead with Him for what He's already promised us? Do we trust Him enough to proceed as though our prayers have already been answered? Even though we don't see the effects of it yet. Mark 5, 35 and 36 says, While He yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Talking about Jairus' daughter. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. There's power in every promise of God if we'll only believe the words of the one who gave those promises to us. If we'll take him at his word, folks. There's power in every promise of God. There's power in every word of God. As the man traveled home, his thoughts, I can imagine, must have been racing. Did he actually heal my son? What if I left him prematurely? Or did his faith remain strong throughout the entire journey? We don't know. In any case, when he finally did return home, his servants gave him the good news. Thy son liveth. When the nobleman inquired further, he realized that his son was healed the very same hour that Jesus said he was healed. 
it did work. The Word of God was sure. It was potent to save. Things change when God speaks. Period. doesn't matter what those things are. doesn't matter how permanent they seem. How fixed they, you believe them to be. It doesn't matter. Things change when God speaks. We must believe what God has said and trust Him until we see the promise fulfilled. If God gives you a promise, it will almost certainly not happen right away. Keep holding on to it. When you see a promise in the Word of God that you need to stand on right now to see a need met, keep standing on it. That promise was given to you. You're a child of God. Every covenant promise is yours to obtain whenever you need it. So get after it. Go get those promises. They're yours. We might not immediately see a change in our station or receive any physical assurance that our prayers have been answered. But we can hold fast to His promise until we receive the report of victory. Amen. We've got to trust in Him. Not in our circumstances. Not in what we see. Did it happen yet? Did it happen yet? Okay, now I can trust in God. It happened. No. Our faith isn't based in the answered prayer. Our faith is based in the One who gave us the promise. That He can and will answer the prayer. That's where our faith is based. My faith isn't even based in how much faith I have. All I need is a grain of mustard seeds worth of faith. That's enough to secure my answer. I can just trust in Jesus enough. My hope can remain in Him enough. He'll answer me. I will secure an answer from Him in prayer. In conclusion, we constantly exercise faith in the Word of others. You probably went to work this week on the Word of your employer who promised to provide you with a paycheck. I know I did. I'm not going without it. (laughs) Married couples enter into that sacred covenant based on spoken words. Vows made to one another. Parents expect their children to trust their words. At some point, all parents will find themselves responding to a questioning child with the time-worn explanation, because I said so. As parents, we feel our authority is such that we shouldn't have to provide details as to why we should be trusted and obeyed. I wonder if Jesus feels the same way. Considering these and many other examples of our faith and the Word of humans, why do we sometimes struggle to trust what God says? even when He has repeatedly proven Himself trustworthy. Does God ever get frustrated by our continued doubt and questions? In Matthew 8, Jesus visited Capernaum, the home of the nobleman, in John chapter 4, where He met a centurion with a servant who was sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. In this instance, Jesus offered to go to the centurion's home to heal the servant. The centurion responded with one of the greatest pronouncements of faith recorded in Scripture. Lord, I'm not worthy that Thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. That, by the way, was because the centurion understood authority. If you will understand authority, you'll have a key to great faith. Jesus was amazed at the centurion's response. The Lord turned to those who stood nearby and said, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The Lord, who knew the hearts of all men, declared that the faith demonstrated by this Roman army officer was the greatest he had ever encountered. 
Jesus responded, Go thy way, as thou hast, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. The centurion's servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Like the centurion of Matthew 8 and the nobleman of John 4, our challenge is to believe the word God has spoken and trust that what he said will come to pass. May we give the Lord reason to be amazed at the faith we demonstrate in him. Amen. John 8.13 Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. I think this verse sums up perfectly the entire lesson. Let it be done unto you according to your faith in God. According to your faith in His promise. Let it be done unto you now. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we worship You. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank You, Jesus, for the Word of the Lord that has been delivered unto us today. I pray in Jesus' name that faith would continue to be released in this assembly. Faith to trust in You. Confidence. A calm assurance in the Word of the Lord that whatever You've promised us, those things must come to pass. When we seek an answer from the Lord, when we seek to secure an answer of You based on a covenant promise that You have given us, we have the calm assurance that You will, You will answer in our time of need. I pray, Lord, that while we're waiting for the answer, while we're seeking You for an answer, that our faith would remain strong in You, that we would not waver, that we would not doubt, but that we would continue to be confident and trust in the Lord our God no matter what until we have secured the answer we're seeking. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name for the remainder of this service that you would continue to move mightily. Bless your people today, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll take a break and be back up here at a